Station. This is a test. For the next 60 seconds, this station will conduct a test of the emergency broadcast system. America, here comes the relief from the pain. Unapologetically, this is Lock and Load with Bill Brady. As we close the week out, we're going to do that with a young a young writer out of Yuma, Arizona named Dean Weingarten. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon, Bill. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. So, apparently, there's a polar bear out there that has been uh, has been dealt with with rubber bullets. Well, that's uh, part of the mystery of this because we don't know for certain. Now, the person who shot the polar bear says they were shot with a rubber bullet. But there's a little bit of ambiguity. Um, and, and this is all part of the trove of information about bear attacks and defenses against bears that we discovered, Amelan, that I discovered with a Freedom of Information Act request. And, and what happened there is that I had come across mention of a database that had a lot of information about bear attacks in it, but which was hidden from the public. Now, why is hard to understand unless you're just a bureaucrat that doesn't want your work to be known or, you know, doesn't want it scrutinized. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act, uh, pretty real at Amelan the actual one who did it, and we got this database which has a lot of information and lots of information about polar bear attacks, and many of them were out of Norway uh, near Svalbard Island, which is way north of the Arctic Circle, and which is administered by international treaties from Norway. And it's one of the highest concentrations of polar bears that exist on the planet, uh, I have recently learned that from about 1880 to 1970, they harvested about 300 polar bears in and around Svalbard every year for 100 years, for nearly 100 years. So that's a lot of polar bears. And then in 1973, they called them endangered and decided to stop harvesting them. So what happened is you have a big uptick in the number of polar bears in the area because uh, nobody hunts them anymore or traps them. And uh, so this was in uh, 19, let's see, 76, I think. Uh, and what happened is that uh, these, this, uh, it doesn't say if he was a trapper, but there's a trapper's cabin that's maintained in this, uh, in Svalbard Archipelago at Vestensen, I don't know if that's the correct way to pronounce it. And uh, this person uh, had uh, 
a dog team, or he had a bunch of dogs. Sounds like a team because he had eight of them uh, at this cabin. But there's a couple other people in this little village, and they witnessed what happened. And people had seen this uh, polar bear. Uh, let's see, it was uh, February 27th, so it's still winter, but it's it's getting to be a little bit more light, and there's light a few hours out of the day. And these people had seen this bear, and they said it was around 12 to 13 hours. Now, I'm presuming they're using a 24-hour clock. But trying to get exactly what that was in that date, it appears to me that it was during daylight hours, which makes sense. But up in the Arctic regions, the sun just barely dips down below the horizon for a while, then comes back up a little bit. You know, it doesn't go like right overhead. So it might have been twilight. And uh, the people who said they had seen it about 12, 13 hours were two women who lived in a cabin uh, not far from what I'm presuming was the Strapper's cabin. And he had eight dogs. And uh, he had warning uh, that the bear was around about, and he started taking his dogs inside the cabin to protect them from the bear. And uh, these these witnesses looked and they saw him taking the dogs in and accounts vary as to how many dogs were left. But there were, there was at least one and maybe three dogs left outside by the time the bear arrived. And uh, this, uh, this bear, he said, uh, was very aggressive. Now, I, I, to be honest, you know, make sure that the readers or listeners understand, I substituted names for names that were redacted in the Freedom of Information Act response. They, they didn't give us names of the people involved. They just redacted them. So we have to make them up from context. And so we called the person who responded to the bears as Ralph, and these witnesses see them. He says he went inside to get a special weapon, a rubber bullet gun, which I'm taking as something kind of like a flare gun, but that fires a rubber bullet. And he says he shot at the bear one time from a distance of one meter. Now think about that. That's a little over arm's length. That's really close. I mean, I, I hardly imagine being that close to a bear without the bear having ill intent. So he fires, he says, the rubber bullet gun once at the bear, and the bear runs off. Well, the people who were watching it from the cabin next door, which is hard to say, it could be 100 yards away, uh, one of them says she only heard one shot, and the other one says she thought she heard two shots, but she's not certain. Now, Ralph said he only claimed that he fired one shot. But he does have a permit, and he has a three fifty seven Magnum revolver that he had at the cabin. Now, the thing was that the rubber bullet gun was purchased in Canada. 20 years before the event, 
when, you know, all these controls about guns and everything were a lot less strict, and you could purchase a rubber bullet gun in Canada without any special forms or anything. And he hadn't purchased just any ammunition since then. And these rubber bullets from the period can become very hard over time. And I'm certain many readers will understand that they've gotten a hold of some rubber product that's been sitting in a a desk drawer or on a shelf or something for decades. And it can be very hard because all the volatile material in the rubber is uh, evaporated, essentially leaving a fairly hard product. And so there's some speculation that shooting a bear with an old rubber bullet might be enough to kill the bear. Hang on right there, if you will. Hang on right there, if you will. This article is at the top of the page, just recently published at Amoland.com. Dean has over 2,200 articles waiting for you there. Well worth your time to go give it a shout, a look at, whatever you want to call it. Uh, The most prolific writer at the biggest website of its type. And does uh, uniquely, he looks at bear attacks, which, you know, not many people are looking at those. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. Welcome back. We are talking with Dean Weingarten, and we were just talking about shooting at a at a polar bear at a distance of one meter with a rubber bullet. <laughs> well, that's what nerves the of steel says. He says it was a rubber bullet. Now, two witnesses think they heard more than one shot, which might indicate that he had his three fifty seven Magnum. Now, I'm not saying he had the three fifty seven Magnum because he says he had a rubber bullet gun, but when they asked him about the rubber bullet gun at a later investigation, he said, oh, I destroyed that and got rid of it. So, you know, I wondered. And uh, maybe uh, he wasn't too, didn't want to be accused of shooting a bear with a three fifty seven Magnum. Now, interestingly enough, the bear runs off. Now, this adds credibility to his statement that he shot it with a rubber bullet. It runs off, and if he knew he shot it with a three fifty seven, he probably would not have told the authorities he shot it with a rubber bullet gun because it would be easy to tell the difference when they found the bear. So he probably, you know, we don't know. I said in the article, it's up to the readers to decide if he shot it with a rubber bullet or with a three fifty seven mag. We don't know. I mean, there's evidence both ways. Either way, the handgun was effective because the bear ran off. And then 
the governor, Albert Thomas, because bears were now a, a, a protected species, and they search for the wounded bear with a helicopter and spend probably considerable time and resources, and uh, the bear is nowhere to be found. So there's speculation. The bear could have run off. It could have swam across the fjord and disappeared into the Arctic wilderness somewhere else. Or it could have been wounded so badly that it's swimming and it dies and it sinks and that's the end of anybody ever seeing the polar bear again. So, but I am including it in the database because whether it was a rubber bullet pistol or a 357 Magnum, it worked. And it was effective in stopping this extremely dangerous bear who got within one meter of a human and uh, didn't get to bite him. Yeah, that's that right there is a, that's a record I, I'm, I'm not going to challenge. Now, we have a, another defense case that uh, has been published on Amelan, and I came across this in a book that's about uh, it's a, a biography, an autobiography of a person who'd written, actually written several books about life in the 1950s and 60s in uh, southeastern Alaska. And uh, the name of the book is Salmon on My Mind. And it covers this period, like I said, from about 1950 to 1960. And it caught my attention because there was another bear attack that had been reported by someone who, a person who'd authored another book, knew uh, this person, Francis Caldwell, who wrote Salmon on My Mind. So I thought it sounded like an interesting book, and I got a copy, and I read it. And in the book, there is a very interesting description of when... Uh, Francis, everybody called him Frank, when Frank Caldwell had to defend himself against the grizzly bear attack. Now, in, in this case, he was armed with a 12-gauge shotgun, uh, and he was duck hunting. He and another fellow were on a skiff with an outboard motor uh, a little bit south of Ketchikan, Alaska, and it uh, actually was on a, a river not very far from the ocean. And they saw a flock of golden-eyed ducks, but they were out of range. And so, but there was this long spit of land that came out into the river. So they formulated a plan to get at the ducks. And that was that they would take their skiff around this long spit of land and then land the skiff on the spit, and then it was a relatively short distance through the brush across the spit, which would, the plan was, would put them within range of the flock of ducks they were hunting. Now, interesting love, uh, Frank had a shotgun, a Remington pump, and it was probably a Remington Model 31, by the way he describes it, and his friend had a 30-40 crank. Uh, he said it was a rusty beat-up crank. 
So he was, uh, Frank was in front of the skiff. And so they, they ground it, the skiff's bow on the beach. Now, because the river's close to the ocean in this case, there's quite a bit of tide. And so the beach was uh, fairly wa- uh, wide because the tide was out. So it was about 50 feet from where they beached the skiff up to where he could tie the boat to an alder that was uh, growing there. So he jumped out with the bowline, or well, they call it a painter, to the uh, uh, skiff in one hand and a shotgun as the other. And as he walked toward the, the alder to tie it, a grizzly bear erupts out of the brush and starts charging him. And he says he doesn't even remember doing it, but he drops the painter, the line to the skiff, and brings the shotgun up and just fires as fast as he can work the action. He says he just held the trigger back and fired the action. Now, normally you would be hunting ducks with probably number six shot, maybe number four. People have hunted them successfully with seven and a half. It all depends on the type of hunting you're doing. But I guess he probably had number sixes in there. And at the time, and still today, to hunt ducks, you're legally limited to three shots that can be in the firearm at one night. So I imagine he just brings that gun up and bam, bam, bam. And he said he kept pumping the action and got click, click, you know, because this bear had been coming at him. But as he fired the, the last shot, the bear just dropped, and uh, it's, it's dead. It's dead right there from birdshot out of a shotgun. And his friend, who was in the, the skiff, had been just been turning to the motor, probably turning it off as they grounded. And uh, he said, I never saw anything until I heard the shot, and I looked, and there the bear is going down because, Frank said, why didn't you shoot? Because you know, his friend had the 30-40 crank, pretty powerful, almost as powerful as the 308. And he said, I, I didn't see anything until the bear was already dead. I, no reason for me to shoot. Let me get you to hold up right there, if you will, please, sir. Coming up on the next break, this article. This article, uh, this was published on the 22nd of March. If you want to go back looking at it, it's in the archive. It's in Dean's archive, which has 2,200-plus other articles in it as well. Well worth your time to go check it out. Ammoland.com. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. years, Aero Precision has paved the way as a leading manufacturer of American-made AR parts. Aero Precision caters to the rifle builder by engineering quality receivers, hand guards, and other essential parts. Aero Precision's added enhancements create a smooth build process from start to finish for beginners and seasoned builders. Whether this is your first rifle or your 50th, Aero Precision offers everything you need to make a quality AR at an affordable price. In the 21st century, the handgun has become the preeminent self-defense tool. At CNH Precision, we specialize in taking your weapon to the highest degree of functionality possible. With a complete array of goods and services specializing in red dot sight installation, CNH Precision will help you realize the most effective handgun the first time. If you need slide milling, installation, or accessories, go to chpws.com. CNH Precision. Welcome to the Boom Squad. 
At Chambers Custom, we have one job. We strive to build the most obsessively reliable, accurate, and beautiful pistols for the discriminating gun owner. Using the ageless 1911 design with a 21st century approach to each part and component, Chambers Custom meticulously begins each pistol as a standalone project, creating a bespoke, handcrafted, peerless firearm. They integrate all of the internal, external, and intrinsic elements that make a custom 1911 unit. Go to ChambersCustom.com. Chambers Custom, truly the mechanical advantage. At Spikes Tactical, we are all shooters with a very simple mission. Make the best product we can perfect at the best possible price for our consumers. We strive to produce the best components and rifles available with quality control second to none because real-world events don't allow for a second chance. Whether you are an operator, competitor, or home defender, Spikes Tactical will serve you well. Go to SpikesTactical.com. Spikes Tactical, 100% American-made to the highest standard. There's no such thing as a fair fight. And we bring the unfair advantage that is the 2011 platform. Dominate. At Staccato, we know the most important gun you own is the one that you're carrying when you're facing that threat to life and freedom. Win. We want you to enter that objective confidence that you are carrying the best gun in the gunfight. No compromise. No sacrifice. Staccato2011.com. Stand ready to face down the darkness with 2011. Holster.com, the home of DeSantis Quality built American-made products for 45-plus years. Supporting police and government contracts from first responders to responsible citizens. Holster.com is your source for quality American-made leather and Kydex holsters for the armed American. For concealed carry or open carry, Holster.com has what you need. We didn't invent concealment. We perfected it. Go to Holster.com now and buy a DeSantis holster today. What's in a name? If that name is Ace Firearms, you've just entered a very expensive business. First, a fully appointed gun shop with all the guns, ammo, and accessories you could possibly imagine. But then you enter the manufacturing facility that is home to Red Alligator Concealment, Militia Arms Customs, and so much more. Ace Firearms is beyond a simple gun shop. This is a totally peerless operation. To find out more, go to acefirearms.com. Ace Firearms. This is only the beginning. At MGS, we have what it takes to reinvent yourself. With a curriculum designed to balance work, family, and a gun repair education, MGS provides the gateway into one of the fastest-growing segments of the gun industry. Modern Gun School's mission is to provide high-quality distance education using time-tested materials and hands-on projects designed to develop a proficiency in both the technique and the business of gunsmithing. Go to mgs.edu. MGS Trade School. Your future is waiting. Welcome back. We are talking to writer Dean Weingarten about uh, the salmon on my mind. I guess that's the world as seen by that's a bear. That's the name of the book. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and Frank Caldwell wrote it, and he spent a lifetime up in uh, Alaska and then all the way from California to uh, up fr- fairly far north in Alaska pursuing salmon as a commercial fisherman. But in the case we're talking about, that was before all that started. And he was hunting ducks with a friend, and a grizzly bear comes charging out of the brush 
And he's got his Remington pump shotgun, probably a Model 31, because it didn't have a disconnector, he says. And the 870 had just come out. Uh, and he, so he's, I, I was, uh, I misstated the date. This was Frank, well, I don't think I said it. In Frank's case, this was in, uh, I think, 1951 or 52. And he had, uh, he had just, so the 870 only came out in 1950. So it's almost certain that he had a, an, an earlier uh, shotgun, probably the Remington Model 31. And it's got extremely smooth action, and it doesn't have a disconnector. So you just hold the trigger back, and every time you pump it, it'll fire. And that's what he said happened in this case. And what we, one of the reasons that I found this fascinating is that we have seen, I have seen, and others have reported, there's several cases where people with shotguns just using bird shot have killed grizzly bears at fairly close range. Now, when they measured the distances, they found that this bear had come out of the brush about 16 yards from Frank when it came charging at him, and that he dropped it six yards from his uh, feet, you know, that it was dead right there uh and uh so even out to six yards and beyond a shotgun with a load of bird shot is a very powerful weapon um and at, especially out of a full choke shotgun the pellets are concentrated in a relatively small area at, at six yards they're probably no more than about two inches across and you've got hundreds of lead pellets that are all striking very fast. And what happens is that the ones in the lead destroy some tissue and penetrate into, you know, bone or flesh. And then the ones behind them hit them and that penetrates further. And, uh, you get this, it, it's like a pre-fragmented bullet hitting. Uh, and it just pulps the flesh. And uh, there's no question that it can penetrate several inches into flesh. And Frank was aiming at its head, and it's not hard to understand how some of those pellets got into the brain and, and killed the bear right then. Hmm. <laughs> so don't it, just because you have a shotgun with birdshot, don't think you're not armed with enough to kill a bear. Well, I mean, if you're close enough, I would imagine birdshot can be pretty deadly if it comes out. Oh, it's tight, extremely tight. deadly. Yeah. yeah. And, and if you ever get it, well, if you ever come across, talk to people who've attended autopsies where birdshot has been used on a person at close range, it, it just destroys everything in its path. I mean, it's extremely destructive, very, very, but it, but it doesn't have huge penetration, usually a few inches. But when you're talking to bear's head, a few inches gets you into the brain. Yeah. Anyway, bears, bears are everywhere. They're not going anywhere. Well, let's talk about uh, defensive shooting we all know about. Yeah. Or most, yeah. most people heard of national news, big news. And that was the Greenwood Mall shooting where uh, Elisha Dickin, uh, the Greenwood Mall shooter, uh, was given an award in Greenwood, Indiana. And he was uh, given... Uh, granted or established or certified as citizen of the year by the mayor of uh, Greenwood, 
Indiana. And uh, the picture on Twitter shows the uh, police chief handing him the award, and his attorney is uh, standing on the other side of him. And uh, I think it was uh, an award well-deserved. And I particularly am pleased to see it because so much of our current society seems to denigrate the idea of a person being a hero and doing the right thing and saving people with the direct use of applied force. And yet that's what is required in many cases. And I object, and a friend of mine, Alan Corbin, who's written a number of books about guns and guns in the law particularly, uh, he said we should not call these mass shootings. He said shooting is a sport. Murder is a crime. So we should call them mass murders, not mass shooting. And in this case, there were two shooters in the Greenwood Park Mall on that day. One of them was bent on mass murder. The other was bent on having a good time. But he was forced to defend himself and his girlfriend and the other people in the mall by the person who was there to commit mass murder. And he did a extraordinary job. And while, unfortunately, three people were killed, uh, as I recall, it was three, he stopped it at only three. And he did it quickly and effectively as he could. And it's sad, but there was another armed person there that day. And he was... Uh, encountered the shooter before there was any warning, before anybody else was shot. And apparently he was the first victim and was shot and killed before he even understood what was going on. But his death served a purpose. It, the shots uh, alerted Eli so that he was able to react and stop the shooter from killing many more people, and even though two more people were killed and others were wounded, it was stopped there and it didn't become one of these mass murders where 10, 15, 20, 25 people are killed um, before anybody is able to respond with appropriate force and stop it. And Eli got, uh, you know, recognized for it, and he was recognized early on. And it's weird that today we see uh, somebody who is involved as a mass murderer uh, seems to be being portrayed as the victim uh, in uh, the, the recent shooting in Tennessee. Yeah, I so, saw that. Yeah. It, the, the cry for help, the only felt this was the only way, thing they could do. And you know. Which is kind of weird, you know. I, we've I think we've talked about this in the past, about how what we see is media contagion. People commit these mass murders in part because they want fame and attention. And so if the media gives them fame by making them into a celebrity or an anti-hero, and their name will be known forever because they killed a bunch of people of innocence for no reason other than they didn't like their lives and, and they didn't want to die alone or whatever. Uh, they wanted to take a bunch of people with them. 
And that's the wrong motivation to send out there. When we did not have the mass media making anti-heroes of these murderers, we had a lot less mass murder. Right. Now they get out there, and I, I'm almost certain that the reason this individual had an AR-15 is because they had heard it was the weapon of choice. Wouldn't you guess? Right. I think that's correct, I, th- because we, we've seen, I believe, the number of people armed with AR-15s going up as the media has touted it as the weapon of choice for mass murderers. Now, I don't know if they even fired the AR-15 in this case. Those facts have not have yet to be revealed. But the only uh, rifle I see that firing is uh, the sub-2000. Hang on right there, if you will, talking to Dean Weingarten. We'll be right back. This is Lock and Load. Last time on the firing line, we are talking to Dean Weingarten. We were just we were just talking about Tennessee, and I noticed that uh, somebody sent a bill forward to send a lot of money to uh, schools to uh, harden them, school safety, whatever. I, I don't know what guys that was going there, and of course uh, Joe Biden will not consider them unless. Uh, he gets an assault weapon ban, so I don't guess he's. I don't guess we get any school hardening and everything. But I mean, this is really the job of the states, isn't it? Well, I think yes, yeah, the states, uh, the federal government should stay out of this, in my opinion, uh, because they shouldn't be promoting uh, gun control. And I had an interesting conversation. Well, let's see, I was a subject of an interesting conversation yeah. of a local radio show host whose name is uh, Russ Clark. I am. I'm a regular guest on the show once a week. I, I, I co-host the show with him for two hours. Yes, sir. And uh, so he was recently at a, um, oh, gosh, a conservative get-together in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of bigwigs. And they said, well, you know, they were discussing this idea of a, of a ban on assault weapons. And he said, well, that's not the way to stop school shootings. He says, uh, you know, what, what we need is you need some armed people in the schools. And they said, well, you know, all we've seen is this data put out by some, and I believe it was a teacher's union, uh, saying that, well, look, Texas made it available to schools to, to have armed shooters, and uh, they have some of the worst record on the nation for school shootings. And, and it was really interesting to me because he said, well, that's not the way to look at it. He says, how many schools actually had armed staff on the premises when they had somebody trying to murder people at the school? And at least from what I recall of the radio show, the uh, legislators, the Congress critters looked yeah. at him and said, well, well, I never thought of it that way. And they said, we just got this stuff from the teachers. And he says, let me call up my gun expert, Dean Weingarten. <laughs> Put him on speakerphone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 
And so I started saying, well, in Texas, there have been hundreds of schools that have taken advantage of the program, and none of those schools have been had mass murders committed on them. And the legislators said, gee, we never heard that before. I'm sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, 30, 30, isn't it 30% of the schools in the, or school districts in Texas have armed teachers? Isn't that? I, I know it's in the hundreds of them. Right. I'm not sure of the percentage, but I, I did an article on Amaland about it, and it turns out that there are hundreds that have actually used the program to have armed staff on, you know, on their school premises, and it appears to work quite well. Sure. And, and we even in this latest uh, mass murder at the school in Tennessee, there are reports, I haven't been able to verify them yet, that the murderer went to a different school first, but when she found they had armed security, or her, or he, I mean, I don't know which one they preferred at any she one time. Was, she was a female that wanted to be a guy. That's what has been reported. Well, anyway, so when this shoot, when this murderer found there were armed security, it's been reported that she then went to this other school, which did not have armed security. And interestingly enough, now, I have to give credit to my brother because he did some investigative work on it, and so I'm going by what he told me. And he said that there was a consultant who um, worked with the school to do uh, active shooter drills at the school. But the consultant, in what he looked at, only talked about how to harden the school. And a hardened school is only as good as the people who are protecting the hardened access points. Right. If you don't have any armed people protecting those access points, the shooter just shoots the way in, which is exactly what happened. Well, I mean, I, 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 I look at that as a passive defense at best. Exactly. Exactly correct. And passive defenses need active defenders to back them up to be effective. And in this case, there were no active defenders. There's no case of no in uh, no news reporting so far that I have seen that anybody in the school was armed to defend against this sort of attack. And so they they lost six people. Uh, now, the police response in the uh, Tennessee case, I thought, was exceptionally good. Textbook. And they still lost six people. But but they got there. They did their job. The, the, you've seen probably seen the body cam video of it where in I think that it was all over in 14 minutes. From, uh, from 14 minutes, first shot from call to termination, yeah. From call to termination. But 14 minutes is a very long time in an active shooting situation. It sure is. And uh, even though the police responded very well, used the right tactics, and immediately went to where they heard the shots and, and stopped the threat, it, it took longer than somebody who, being on the scene, would have stopped it much quicker, yeah. almost certain. Well, I mean, I, I think in Tennessee they do allow for armed teachers in the schools, except this was a private Christian school. Well, the school has to basically go along with it. Yeah. They have to approve it. Well, one thing, and, uh, you know, I, I've had Unfortunately, to, you know, the administrator in this case died. So she made a bad decision, it appears. Indeed. Um, the, the, the biggest part, though, is that um, 
I've I've had discussions with ministers about guns and churches, and it's always uh, I, I just find it so disheartening that we have to think of having guns in the sanctuary, but you do have to have guns in the sanctuary. I have never. I I am fortunate. I have had many discussions with the pastor of my church, and he's always said, yeah, you guys are doing a good job. we got an armed security team. I have no problem with people carrying guns. And, uh, you know, when I posted an article with me standing out front of the church with an AR-15 and a radio and an earplug on, and, uh, you know, he said, yeah, that's great. I have no problem with that at all. So, of course, many of our uh, members, our retired military and current military and current law enforcement and current military. Right. But I mean, even in the best of cases, getting out there and not being aware of it. I mean, we, we, what was, I don't remember which, uh, church it was in Texas where dude pulls a gun and he's shot almost immediately by a, uh, a guard for the Texas church, but he did shoot one of the other guards. That was the, yeah, the white settlement case. And it was just, it, it the whole thing was over in like, Six seconds. Yeah, at best. And uh, he wasn't a paid uh, security guy. He was a volunteer. Yeah. Just he, he wasn't. But now the difference in that case was that he was a very well-practiced pistol shop. He had his own personal firearms range. I got a very brief interview with him at his home uh, a few days after that shooting. And uh, so I could see that he had his own pistol range set up. And it's obvious he he had a 357 SIG uh, pistol, which is an expert's cartridge, of course. And and he was very good at it. And he did a headshot on the guy who was killing, appeared to be intent on killing people, and already killed one um, when he when he shot him. Well, did a headshot from about. I think it's about 50 feet away. Until, 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 this is going to happen again, though. Oh, of course. This, this, this is resist. Getting out there and truly hardening a school is the the single one thing they do not want to do. And uh, I, you know. Well, it, more than that, they don't want to have armed private citizens in the school defending the school. Well. They would go for hardening before they, they, they go for hardening. Well, they need to do both. I agree. They need to do both because the hardening means that the armed teachers have a moment to respond because it does yeah, take more a time to to, to, exactly. to digest in their head and everything and get everything going. But I mean, yep. you don't it's see that, you don't see this happening in Ohio where they have a faster program. But anyway, before I run out of time, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me today, sir. It's always a pleasure, and you're absolutely correct. And the faster program is one of the best in the nation. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I will be back Monday. And between now and then, you should remember this. It has never been about gun control. It has been. It's always going to be about total control. This has been lock and load.